Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. It's been a week of highs and lows for former President Trump in his legal battles. We give you some of the latest updates. Are your tax dollars going to China to buy solar panels made with slave labor? House lawmakers are sounding the alarm, calling for an investigation. Thousands of people are sharing personal stories of suspected vaccine injuries and deaths in a Facebook group. We hear from the creator of the group. Florida ranks number one in education freedom, according to a new report. What Governor Ron DeSantis says about the findings. And it's almost 21 years since the 9-11 terror attacks. We hear from a fighter jet pilot who went on a remarkable mission that morning. Former President Trump's involved in his fair share of legal battles, from lawsuits filed against him by several government officials to lawsuits he's filed against some of the same government actors. NTD's Arlene Richards lets us know where these cases stand now. It's been a week of legal highs and lows for former President Trump, from a victory in the special master case to a recent development in a case against Hillary Clinton. Here are the updates. On Friday, a federal judge dismissed Trump's case against Hillary Clinton and others. Judge Donald Middlebrooks said in a 65-page decision that the claims presented in the amended complaint are not warranted under existing law. Also on Friday, the Trump legal team and the Justice Department are expected to submit their lists of special master candidates. Monday, Trump-appointed Judge Eileen Cannon granted Trump's request for a special master to review documents seized in the Mar-a-Lago raid. But on Thursday, the Justice Department put Cannon on notice that it plans to appeal that decision. Meanwhile, former Trump aide Steve Bannon said on The Charlie Kirk Show that the FBI yesterday raided at least 35 Trump allies' homes. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. A former executive branch attorney says he believes that Congress isn't keeping a close eye on the Biden administration. So he and a partner created the Oversight Project. What have they found so far? We hear more from NTD's Arlene Richards. He started to go on offense. A former attorney at the Office of Homeland Security says he and his partner are going on the offense to get answers to questions that the American people want to know. Since the beginning of this year, Mike Howe has led the oversight project at the Heritage Foundation. He says he's hoping to fill the void that Congress has left. It's a recognition that basically you know, Congress, who has a duty to perform adequate oversight of the executive branch, has failed in that duty, most noticeably over this last uh, year and a half and some change. Howell said the project's been very active in state and local jurisdictions. I asked him what he's found so far. One interesting thing we recently uncovered is in the Washington, D.C., in dealing with the illegal aliens that are being bused there by Texas, they're turning around and then shipping them all across the country, working close collaboration with a lot of, you know, quote-unquote charities in the United States. So on one hand, you have them uh, decrying Texas for sending illegal aliens to D.C., and then they turn around and do the exact same thing and send them elsewhere. So we obtained emails that caught them red-handed. He said the federal government used the COVID-19 pandemic to politicize public health, but getting answers to his questions hasn't been easy. At the federal level, we're currently engaged in several uh, litigation efforts because the Biden administration is refusing to comply with the law and give us the documents that we have you know, rightfully sought under our rights in the law. And so we're in court uh, in several cases, most recently on the Mar-a-Lago raid as well. 
He said he recognized the Justice Department has been leaking confidential documents to the media. Our theory is they raided the president's home over a document dispute. While the Department of Justice has document retention laws as well. If they have not retained those documents, they are in violations themselves of record laws. Meanwhile, there's been ongoing developments in the special master case. Howe gives his take on the most recent updates. The judicial branch basically said through Judge Cannon, we don't trust you to be apolitical in this. We see that you're leaking all the time. We need to get a neutral referee in here to take a look at the, the privileged nature of some of these documents. And it was a great ruling. Of course, the DOJ appealed because they won this run completely through political channels. They don't want anyone else sniffing around their business, just like they don't want me suing them. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. In the battleground state of Ohio today, President Biden vows to boost microchip production and revive the Midwest. Here's the president speaking at the groundbreaking of an Intel plant today. It's time to bury the label Rust Belt and call it as Pat said, the Silicon Heartland. Folks, the future of the chip industry is going to be made in America. Intel's $20 billion project in Ohio will create thousands of jobs. And Biden used the occasion to tout the recently passed CHIPS Act, which invests billions of dollars in American semiconductor manufacturing. Critics say the legislation would allow companies to use taxpayer money to invest in China. But Biden on Friday said that won't happen and instead promised it'll revive an industrial Midwest. And is the government using American tax dollars to buy products made with forced labor in China? That's what lawmakers on the House Oversight Committee want to know, and they're calling for an investigation to get answers. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports. 18 lawmakers on the House Oversight Committee are asking the Department of Homeland Security's Inspector General to launch an immediate investigation into whether tax dollars are being used to buy solar panels made in China, describing the country as an adversary with a record of human rights abuses and slave labor. 80% of the polysilicon capacity, 80% of the solar panel manufacturing capacity, that's all in China. Specifically, the lawmakers are raising concerns about the U.S. Virgin Islands. The territory is transitioning to solar power, and its governor has plans to make St. Croix 100% powered by solar energy. The DHS awarded the islands $4.4 million in 2021 for a new 28-megawatt solar microgrid project on St. Croix. Now, this criticism from House Republicans comes just months after the Biden administration waived tariffs on Southeast Asian countries as a way to import more solar panel parts because the administration said we had an inadequate supply of solar cells and modules. Now, this is important because the Commerce Department has been investigating whether China is using those very Southeast Asian countries, countries like Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, and Cambodia, in order to set up shop there and get a around existing U.S. tariffs, in practical terms, here's exactly what that means. China will, you know, mostly assemble a solar panel, send it to another country, maybe Malaysia, to have a few screws tightened, and then send it off to the United States. So they're kind of relaxing their moral guidelines in order to increase the amount of solar. And it will take a very long time before the U.S. can match China in this production and revive a solar industry that has been decimated over the past 20 years. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. 
adverse reactions to COVID-19 vaccines are highly censored in the media. So where do the vaccine injured go for support? Or family members of someone who died after getting the vaccine? NTD's Jason Perry has that story. I've had a lot of vaccine injuries here in my local community. Um, so I thought something was off initially. Um, you know, I even visited a few of these vaccine injured people. Um, so I just one day decided to start a group. Tiago Henriquez created a Facebook group called Died Suddenly News in the summer of 2021. Members of the group share personal stories of people they know who have developed serious medical conditions or even died shortly after being vaccinated. What was kind of the purpose in, in creating this group? I wanted uh, people to talk to each other, to, you know, uh, uh, individuals who've gone through the same experience. They can be there for each other, uh, be compassionate, show some love and, and you know, just, just get a little bit of relief because a lot of these people live in small communities. They have nobody to talk to. The physicians won't listen to them. The nurses won't listen to them. And I think this was a great avenue for these people to, to feel listened to. And little did he know, the Facebook group would grow so quickly, with now over 240,000 members. Many share stories of close friends or relatives who died suddenly after being vaccinated. And I think the core of the group, uh, the essence or heartbeat of the group, are the posters themselves. The stories that you read on there from vaccine injuries, vaccine deaths, you know, they're very visceral. These are real people in your communities telling you, you know, telling everybody about their story. And I think that's what makes it more real. It's, it's you know, people, everyday people, blue collar people telling their stories. Henrique says he is in the process of creating a brand new platform for Died Suddenly News, free of censorship. He says there is more info at the discussion tab on the Died Suddenly News Facebook group. Jason Perry, NCD News. And in education, Florida has been named the country's top performer overall in a new report that measures educational freedom. Speaking at the report's launch today, Governor Ron DeSantis touted student performance, saying school choice helped the state rank third for K-12 achievement in a report last year by Education Week. And so you can see that when uh, parents have options, they're able to find the school and the situation that's best for their students, their kids. That's better, obviously, to be in the right environment. Uh, but it's also caused uh, competition, which has been healthy. And I think it's caused both the school districts, the charter, and the private to innovate. So we're really happy with that. And we think that that's a model for ways um, into the future. The Heritage Foundation's Education Freedom Report Card ranked Florida best in the country in academic transparency. It came second in regulatory freedom, third in school choice, and seventh in return on spending. Arizona and Idaho ranked second and third overall, respectively. And D.C. came in last in 51st place, with New York and New Jersey trailing close behind. And many parts of California reached triple digits during this week's heat wave. While some people had to face energy conservation calls to lower their thermostats, others had to work all day in the scorching heat. NTD's David Lamb visits a construction site to hear how workers dealt with it. California is at the tail end of a week of extreme heat, but that hasn't stopped state construction workers. Jose Medina, a construction foreman, works for internet service providers. He's currently repairing the asphalt pavement in Santa Clara, California. He says he and his team work eight to nine hours in the baking sun. 
I feel hot. <laughs> it's kind of hard to work on the. It's kind of hard to work on this day because you know your body's not the same when you're working. In the morning, you can feel the power, but sometimes in the afternoon, you feel weak. When you get a wind or a breeze come by, like how does that feel? So our air conditioner is the wind. Yeah, we don't have any condition outside. The workers wore light-colored long sleeves to not only block UV rays, but also increase their visibility for drivers. It's a sweltering temperature out here, and a lot of the workers are just always in the sun, and they often just break a sweat. Now, what keeps them going is their family and the lifestyle of the work. It's just my family. Family. Yeah, I support my family. That's, that's why they keep me going to work. It's, it's a livelihood. You just got to, you know, this is my life. This is my business. So, you know, you just got to keep doing what you do. Matthew Crick helps run an inventory business. He calls himself the muscles of the team. Um, I've been moving stuff all day since around 7 a.m. And, uh, you know, you just got to do what you got to do. When it's hot, you know, you sweat, you wipe yourself down with a little rag, but you just keep muscling through it. In buildings without AC, fans are the only option. Once 100 degrees, it's 100 degrees in there. We just live with it. Some areas in California are expected to cool down by this weekend. Crick is looking forward to cooler temperatures. David Lamb, NTD News, California. Coming up, it was a mission hard to believe but impossible to refuse. Former fighter jet pilot Heather Penny shares her story from 9-11. And in baseball news, major rules are coming next year that could shorten the game, including a new pitch clock. NTD's Dave Martin breaks down the changes. That and more coming up. This Sunday marks the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks that killed close to 3,000 Americans. A fighter jet pilot who went on a suicide mission to intercept one of the hijacked planes shares her story with NTD. Heather Penny tells a story of courage amid the 9-11 tragedy. At the time, she was a brand-new lieutenant in the D.C. Air National Guard and had just gone through pilot training. On that morning, after the third plane crashed into the Pentagon, she and a fellow pilot got permission to launch their F-16s and intercept potentially hijacked passenger liners. We knew that if we took off and we were mission successful, that we would be ramming our jets into the airliner that we would not be coming home, that if we were successful, it was a one-way mission. Because we didn't have, we, we, we didn't get the missiles in time. Given the stakes, and we had seen, we had seen the aircraft on the television fly into World Trade Center. We knew what had to be done. There was no question in my mind. Their target was United Flight 93, but they didn't find anything. It wasn't until later that day that Penny learned what happened to the plane. Passengers on that flight took a vote to take down the terrorists, and the plane later crashed into an open field in Pennsylvania, killing everyone on board. It was later found out that the hijackers were planning to crash the plane into the U.S. Capitol or the White House. I felt like a failure because... Mm -hmm. 
those people should never have been in a position where they had to make the decision that they did. We failed them as our nation's military. Our intelligence apparatus failed our nation. There were so many strings of failures that led to that day, but what? But looking back on 9-11, 21 years ago, the former fighter jet pilot says the story of Flight 93 gives her hope. What the passengers on 93 did that day gives me hope because when they got up that morning, they were just going on a business trip or coming home from vacation or going to see their family. They hadn't raised their right hands and given an oath to protect and defend. But that's what they did. That's what they did. The greatest generation, that spirit, isn't gone. It's still alive in each and every one of us. You can watch the full interview with Heather Penny this Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on The Nation Speaks with Cindy Drucker here on NTD News. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Major League Baseball will implement significant rule changes next year to speed up the pace of play, including a new pitch clock. In addition, defensive shifts, which have become popular over the last decade, will be banned. The new pitch clock will be 15 seconds unless there's a runner on base in which it moves up to 20. Pitchers must start their motion to pitch by the time the countdown ends. Meanwhile, hitters must have both feet in the batter's box and be alert at the 8-second mark, while catchers have to be ready at 10. A violation by the pitcher results in a ball, while a hitter violation gives them a strike. Pickoff attempts will reset the clock, and pitchers are allowed two unsuccessful attempts per plate appearance. A third unsuccessful attempt will result in a balk. Meanwhile, the infield shifts work like this. Typically, teams would load up one side of the infield against extreme pole hitters. More popular against lefties, this shift would see the second baseman move to short right field, while the shortstop would move to the other side of second base, and the third baseman would move to the shortstop's position to load up one side of the field. But the new rules prevent this by requiring at least two infielders on either side of second base. In addition, all four infielders must have both feet in the dirt, eliminating any four-man outfields. In sports tonight, Francis Tiafo will face Carlos Alcarez in the U.S. Open semifinals. In baseball, 14 games are on the docket tonight, highlighted by Yankees versus Rays interdivision class. Saturday, we'll see 22 college football games with ranked teams involved, three of which will see them facing each other, including Tennessee, Pittsburgh, Kentucky, Florida, and BYU, Baylor. And on Sunday, week one of the NFL season continues with Tampa Bay Dallas as a primetime event. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And in the woods of Northern California sits an outdoor cider bar run by a family for over 140 years. NTD's Eileen Ang has their story. Gowan's Heirloom Cider, a family-run business about an hour south of Fort Bragg, has been flourishing since 1876. Fifth-generation farmer and cider maker Sharon Gowan says they recently opened up the outdoor cider bar during the pandemic. 
we started making hard cider about 10 years ago. Um, some of our hard ciders won best in the world's largest cider competitions. And um, we we're super excited. We got to open up an outdoor tasting room last two years ago during the pandemic. So people can come and try our cider from our taps and our bar and sit amidst these historic trees. And it's lots of fun. They're not very soft. They're pretty hard, but they're sweet and they're tart. Sharon married into the family 30 years ago and has two sons who are the current sixth generation. The 200-acre apple farm has over 100 different varieties and about 11,000 trees. The family continues to harvest apples from some of the exact same trees as their ancestors, some being 150 years old. In the 1990s, we had some researchers that came by and they were shocked to find out that we had this apple. It's called the Sierra Beauty apple. And they thought it was extinct. They'd been searching for it for decades. Their fruits are grown organically. Sharon explains how everything stays on the farm, from growing to packaging. We harvest the apples, we press them into juice, we ferment them and bottle them right here on the same property so nothing leaves. And then any waste, like the pulp after the pressing, we spread that around on the farm so that our native wild bees can also have some of that and that helps them in the fall to grow. So we hope to not have to bring in honeybees because we've, all, we've been supporting the wild bee population. And they're so pretty when you get them all shined up, right? After picking, the apples go through a machine for washing before it's pressed into large fermentation tanks. They also bottle the cider on site once every few months. The current matriarch of the farm is 97-year-old Josephine Gowan. She took some time to share fond memories of her apple picking days. I had a, a woman's crew of about 16 women, and we, the, the men worked in the in the meals in, in the forest and we picked the apples. The women and I picked the apples and I was a pretty good apple picker. Now she walks about an hour around the orchard every day. Her favorites are Gravenstein, Sierra Beauty and Astrakhan. She notes that Jonathan's are great for eating and cooking. It's an apple that I could use for everything. It fries beautifully. It makes a beautiful fried apple. It makes a good sauce. It makes a good pie. It makes a good eating apple. It doesn't keep real long, but it keeps pretty good. The farm is open year-round. Besides selling apples, cider, and slushies on the property, they also ship the fruits to select markets and schools. Every year, they sell about 10,000 cases of cider. Eileen Ang, NTD News, Philo, California. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.